following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw, for our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. I don't know whether you've heard of the seven wonders of the ancient world. One of those things we kind of hear about in school and then forget about quite soon after. Um, I couldn't have named any of them before I looked them up. But these are uh, amazing feats of human engineering that existed in ancient cultures, like the Roman Colosseum is one of them. And one of the seven wonders of the ancient world existed in Babylon, which is the city where this passage and the whole book of Daniel is set. And it existed during the time that Daniel lived and during the time of Nebuchadnezzar. In fact, it was created by this guy, King Nebuchadnezzar. And it's the famous Hanging Gardens of Babylon. don't know whether you've heard of them, but the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. We've got a picture here. Uh, you didn't know they had photography in those days, but um, that's an artist's impression of what they might have looked like. We don't really know, but based on descriptions, uh, this was apparently a pretty impressive site right in the heart of the city of Babylon. You've got this structure here, and Nebuchadnezzar built this. I mean, he commissioned it, and he oversaw the construction of it. Uh, the structure that has columns around the outside... And then on top of the columns, sort of like a terraced roof. So terraces going up and up and up until you get to a flat roof right at the top. And then coming down from these terraces and hanging over the columns, all sorts of gardens, just all sorts of trees and shrubs and, plow and flowers of, of all kinds, very diverse varieties. And apparently from far away, you don't quite get the picture there, but from far away, you looked at this thing and it actually looked just like a, like a hill. It looked like a green mountain with all kinds of gardens coming off it. But in fact, underneath was this man-made structure. And Nebuchadnezzar made this apparently for his wife because she grew up in a very mountainous kind of natural environment. And so he wanted her to feel right at home. So it's interesting, isn't it, that you've got a king here who obviously knew a, a thing or two about flowers and about plants and about trees. And how does God get his attention? Through a dream about a tree. Interesting, hey? That God uses something that Nebuchadnezzar would have known a thing or two about to wake him up and shake him up and show him something about himself, show him something about God. So Nebuchadnezzar is lying in bed at night. He has this dream of a tree, this huge cosmic tree that stretches to the ends of the earth and its fruit feeds all the animals and the birds rest in the tree and the animals can rest in the shade of the tree and so on, this massive tree. And then a messenger comes and declares this tree is going to be cut down, and all that will be left is the stump and the roots. Nebuchadnezzar is troubled by the dream, understandably, and he calls all of his magicians and his astrologers and his diviners, and they can't tell him what it means. So eventually Daniel, also called Belteshazzar, he steps forward, and he interprets this dream for Nebuchadnezzar. And he says, that tree, Nebuchadnezzar, that's you. You are the tree. So you've got this amazing kingdom, you've got all this authority, your empire of Babylon stretches to the ends of the known world at the time, that's how it was thought about. You have unrivaled authority, unmatched authority, but it's all going to be taken away from you. Just like that messenger announced, it's going to be taken away. You're going to be driven away from your people. You're going to be driven away from your kingdom. You're going to be taken away from all the authority that you have, and you're going to become like an animal. You're going to become more like an animal than you are like a person <clears throat> unless or until you repent and you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign 
and you bring yourself under his authority. And then maybe, just like there's a stump that was left, maybe there's the potential for your kingdom to be restored to you, for your prosperity to be restored to you if you repent of your sins. Daniel's really preaching to him. He's really preaching the gospel at him and saying, you need to bring yourself under the authority of God. Now, we don't know exactly how Nebuchadnezzar responded at the time, whether he got mad at Daniel, whether he accepted this interpretation, but we do find out his eventual response because then uh, the action of the story fast forwards to a year later, 12 months later, and then we have Nebuchadnezzar walking around the roof of his palace and surveying the great city of Babylon that he had had a big part in constructing. And you've got to imagine the scene. He's looking around. He's on his palace roof. He's looking at the hanging gardens of Babylon, which would have been close by. He's soaking all that up. He's thinking, that's an amazing creation. Aren't I fantastic? He's looking at the city. Babylon was the biggest city in the world at the time, this massive city, luxurious city. Nebuchadnezzar had overseen the construction of a lot of this, and he presided over it with absolute autonomy, and he's just soaking all of this in, and he's just amazed and by his own brilliance and his own leadership and his own power. And he says, as he's looking at all this, he says these words in verse 30. He said, Is this not the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? And you can hear, can't you, where the emphasis falls in those words. All those personal pronouns. I have built my majesty, my mighty power for the glory of my majesty. He's all about himself. This is all about him. He's puffing himself up. He's bragging about his accomplishments. He's stroking his own ego. There's, there's a lot more going on here than just Nebuchadnezzar giving himself a little pat on the back for something that he'd done well. This is not just being quietly pleased with his achievements. This is really Nebuchadnezzar lifting himself up and putting himself in the place of God. This is really Nebuchadnezzar elevating himself to occupy the position that God alone has and taking to himself these things that rightly belong only to God. Glory and majesty and absolute power. And he's basking in his own glory rather than God's glory. He's completely self-obsessed. He's self-absorbed. He's self-focused. He's self-gratifying. He's self-promoting. And the Bible has a word for this. Pride. That's what Nebuchadnezzar's problem is, right? Pride. That he's probably the clearest example that we have in the Bible of the sin of pride. And he even admits it right at the end of the chapter when he looks back on this, when he comes to his senses and he looks back on himself at this period of time, he says, look at the last words in the chapter. Those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. He's talking about himself. He's reflecting on that earlier period when he walked around the rooftops and he's saying, that was me. I was walking in pride. Nebuchadnezzar was a man who was puffed up with pride. Now, you might find that a little bit hard to connect to, this picture of Nebuchadnezzar, and, and we might feel like this doesn't really relate to us because I don't remember the last time I stood on my rooftop and looked out over the great city of Birkenhead and declared, this is my city I have constructed by my great power. We don't tend to do these things. In fact, we, we live, don't we, in a culture which tends to be the opposite. It tends to be more self-effacing. Kiwi culture tends to be quite self-deprecating. We don't like tall poppies. We don't like Nebuchadnezzar types that puff themselves up and talk themselves up. 
we just got turned off by that. That's, that's not very palatable in our culture. So we can sort of look at this and say, well, you know, that's not me. I don't tend to do that kind of thing. I'm much more humble than that. But let me give you a, a basic definition of pride that connects to Nebuchadnezzar, but also connects to us and might just bring this a little bit closer to home. Pride is human beings playing God at the most basic level in Scripture. Pride is human beings playing God. Anytime that we take something that belongs to God, His authority, His glory, His power, whatever it is, and we somehow try to reach for that and we take it and we try to bring it into our own lives and we act like God and we act like our own gods, that's pride. That's playing God. It doesn't always have to look like Nebuchadnezzar. It doesn't always look like someone standing on their rooftops. I mean, you could look around today. You could point to someone like Donald Trump and you could say, well, that guy seems to be the modern-day Nebuchadnezzar. That guy seems to be the modern-day equivalent of Nebuchadnezzar, sort of boasting about all of his stuff and his real estate and talking himself up and all of his wealth and so on. But honestly, it's not good enough for us just to look at examples of pride out there that look like Nebuchadnezzar. It doesn't have to look like that. Pride doesn't have to look like the big arrogant, outward stuff. It can look like the very small stuff. Pride can look like a small little business decision that you make that is absolutely self-serving. That is just self, made out of complete self-interest and just for your own glory and your own well-being. Pride can just look like living life the way you want to live your life and not really giving a rip about anyone or anything else. I think for a lot of people, for a lot of Christians, pride often just looks like leaving God out of it. It just looks like getting on with it. It looks like coming to church on a Sunday and singing the songs and listening to the sermon and taking communion, but then going out the door and most of the time just living how we want to live. Just living in such a way that we call the shots, we make the rules, we're the master of our own fate, we're the captain of our own soul, we're the author of our own destiny. We don't want to answer to other people, including God. We might say we do, but practically speaking, we often live such a self-determined life, and that's pride. We play God simply by living in a way where God kind of orbits around us, rather than our lives genuinely orbiting around God. When we live in a way, even in small things, we live in a way that is self-led rather than God-led. That's pride. When we live in a way that is egocentric rather than theocentric, God-centered, that's pride. When we live in a way that is just self-referential, that is self-determined rather than God-determined, that's pride. And it comes out in small ways, quiet ways, unseen ways, just as much as it comes out in the Nebuchadnezzar ways. So don't just think of shouting from the rooftops. Think of all the quiet ways in which we just get on with being our own boss. We want to be the king of the hill. We want to be the top of the pile. We want to be our own God. That's playing God, and that's pride. And pride really is the original sin in Scripture. It is the original sin. It is the sin that got Satan kicked out of heaven. You remember, Satan used to be an angel of light, one of the most glorious and highly ranked angels. But what did he want? He wanted to play God. He wanted to be in the position of God. And that was unacceptable, and so he got kicked out of heaven. And then subsequently, he went and tempted human beings with exactly the same thing, didn't he? 
Exactly the same thing that he'd tempted himself with when he slithered up to Eve as she held that fruit in her hand. What was the temptation? What did he say to her? You will be like God. Your eyes will be open and you will be like God. See, he knew how to get in. He knew how to seduce humanity. He knew how to tempt us in such a way that it would be irresistible. And it worked, didn't it? That temptation that we would be like God. It was the first temptation. It was too good for these, our, our human ancestors to resist. And ever since then, Satan's been whispering that same old lie to every one of us. You can be like God. At the very least, you can be your own God. You can be the king of your own stuff. You can be the one that has complete control and mastery over your own life. He's been whispering that lie to every person ever since, and we take the bait, we listen, and we believe it, and we live it out. And that's pride. Come back to this picture of the hanging gardens for a minute. You have another look at that picture. If we can pop that back up, dear lift, when we've got a second. If you see, or we could just sing. <laughs> Let me just describe it. You'll see in a second. At the back of that picture, there's another structure. Can you just see it in the background? It's kind of a pyramid-type structure at the background. You know what they're depicting there? Tower of Babel. Interesting, isn't it? The Tower of Babel was in the same location as the city of Babylon. Babel came to meet Babylon. Another example in the biblical story of human pride. It's, it teaches just the same thing, doesn't it, if you look in Genesis 11? Human beings reaching up to God. Nothing wrong with engineering projects and building towers. But what the intention was, was to be like God. Reach as high as God. We can be just like God. And God stalled the project. And ever since, right through history, through the biblical story, on down through today, pride has just taken different forms in different cultures. It just has different manifestations in different periods of history. The, the, the particular form that pride takes in our culture today is individualism. You could even say hyper-individualism that ruthless focus on the rights and the authority and the autonomy of the individual person. I was listening to some radio ads the other day while I was painting the house. And you know, we don't listen to ads that much anymore because everything's on demand. But when you've got the radio playing for several hours, you actually have to listen to quite a few ads. And it just struck me again, listening to all these ads, just how much they play to the power and the authority and the autonomy of the individual. That is the engine room of modern advertising. And every second ad is, you are the one calling the shots. We're all about you. You're in the driver's seat. You have your say. You do it your way. You create. You are the master. Just playing up constantly the idea of the autonomous individual. In our culture, the goal is to live out your individual destiny, to discover your true self and live that out. Isn't that the storyline of every Disney movie ever made? Live out your unique and individual destiny as a truly free and uninhibited individual. The worst thing you can be is shackled by some sort of authority. You need to be truly free to live out your calling. Find your true self within. Be true to yourself. Live out your destiny. March to the beat of your own drum. That's the individualistic mantra that gets rolled out in our culture. And it's just another version of the same old song of human pride. And this desire that we've got to somehow create our identity ourselves and then live that identity out ourselves and not let anyone else tell us what to do, least of all God. It's just simply another guise 
of human pride. And the sad thing is that pride has this toxic effect on our souls. You look at the effect this had on Nebuchadnezzar. As soon as the words were out of his mouth, what happened? Verse 33, immediately what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from people and he ate grass like the ox. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird. Now, that doesn't mean that if you struggle with pride, you're literally going to go insane. But that's what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar. He lost his mind. He went clinically insane. He became more animal-like than human-like. And I think the analogy for us is this, that when we walk in pride and we insist on living this self-determined life rather than a God-determined life, it has a dehumanizing effect on us. We might not literally go insane, but it does dehumanize. It diminishes our humanity. Because to be human, as God created us to be, is to live to the glory of God is to live a life that in fact does bring itself into orbit around God as its center. That's, that's true humanity. That's the image of God. That's the glory of the human person, is a life lived to the glory of God. And this is the irony of modern-day individualism that we hear our culture telling us if we live this truly uninhibited and free individual life, then that is what humanity is. That to be truly human is to be a free and autonomous individual. The reality is, biblically, that diminishes our humanity. That makes us something less than human because it moves us further and further away from God as our center and as our defining reality. And it just brings us into this kind of independent existence, which in fact lowers us. It makes us less human. It makes us more animal-like than it does human. Pride actually messes with our humanity. It makes us ultimately something less than human. So what do we do about it? How do we deal with pride? It's so entrenched. It's so toxic. It's so pervasive. How do we deal with our pride? How do we fix it? And of course, the answer is we can't. In fact, the very fact that we think we can or that we entertain the thought of fixing our own pride just shows us how prideful we are. That we think we can fix our own pride. You can't. We can't fix our pride. But God can. God has. And he's done this by sending Jesus. Jesus is the solution to our pride. We can't solve it ourselves. Jesus is the solution to our pride. I want to read again that passage Graham read out earlier from Philippians 2. And I just want you to think as I read this description of Jesus, I want you to contrast in your mind Jesus and Nebuchadnezzar. Because Jesus really came as the anti-Nebuchadnezzar. He really came as the opposite of everything that Nebuchadnezzar is in this chapter. So listen to this description of Jesus. Verse 6, Philippians 2. Who being in very nature God, that's Jesus. He's the only person who's ever lived who did not need to play God because he was God. He had the authority. He had the power. He was the only one who had the reason to be prideful because he had the authority to begin with. But look what he did. Did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a human being, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus was the only person who has ever lived who had reason to be proud, and yet he rejected it. He rejected the path of pride. He refused to use his own glory and power to his own advantage, which is exactly what Nebuchadnezzar did, but instead he chose the path of humility. And for his earthly life, he submitted himself lovingly, freely, willingly. He submitted himself to the authority of the Father. 
He brought himself under the authority of the Father. And that's where he found his place and his purpose under the Father's loving hand. And that led him to the cross in obedience, in submission. That led him to the cross. And on the cross, Jesus absorbed all of our pride. This is the good news. This is the gospel. On the cross, Jesus absorbed our pride. He absorbed all of our selfishness, all the ways in which we insist on being top of the pile, being our own God, being so stupidly selfish. Jesus absorbed it all on the cross. He took it into himself. Our arrogance, the pride that runs through every human heart was placed on the innocent Son of God on the cross, and he died for it. He died to free us from it so that even though we continue to be selfish, and we are, even though we continue to be so egocentric and want to live these self-determined lives, we can be, if we belong to Jesus, we can be forgiven for that. We still live selfishly so often, but we can be forgiven because of the cross. We can be forgiven our pride so that we no longer stand in the shoes of Nebuchadnezzar. We now stand in the grace of Jesus. We stand clothed in grace. We're clothed in humility, clothed in the righteousness of Christ, who is the truly humble one, the one who shunned pride, walked in the path of humility. And then, as the one who's freed us from pride, Jesus teaches us how to live this out. He teaches us in our lives how we can walk away from pride and how we can walk a road of humility. Humility before others, yes, but primarily what we're talking about this morning is humility before God, first and foremost, at the most basic level, bringing our lives under the authority of God. Now, look at how this worked for Nebuchadnezzar. There's a really insightful little verse here, and it's the turning point of when things begin to be restored for Nebuchadnezzar in verse 34. He comes back into the world of, of sanity. Verse 34, at the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven, and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified Him who lives forever. There's something quite symbolic there, do you think? that Nebuchadnezzar raises his eyes to heaven. I think there's more going on there than just the direction he was looking. There's something about a shift in his heart at that point, that he takes his eyes off himself. He takes his eyes off his world and his concerns and his kingdom and his empire and his glory. And he lifts his eyes to heaven and he places them on God and he acknowledges that the most high rules and he gives glory to and praise to God. Now, there's, there's a debate around whether Nebuchadnezzar here really becomes a follower of God. kind of sounds like he does. We don't really know. Uh, maybe he did, maybe he didn't. But at the very least, he brought himself at this point under the authority of God. He acknowledged that there was an authority higher than he, and he gave glory to God instead of taking it for himself. This is the road God calls us to walk. This is the pathway out of pride and towards humility. Is this, this act the symbolic act that Nebuchadnezzar went through of lifting our eyes to heaven, of acknowledging that we are not God, only God is God, and giving him the authority over our lives, refusing to live this self-determined life, but allowing God to be Lord, allowing God to be in charge of our life and be in the driver's seat of our life. And it's lifting our eyes to heaven. It's not just something you do, though, in a general sense. Because it's not that difficult when we're all gathered here on a Sunday morning. It's not that difficult to kind of do that in the abstract, is it? I mean, you can make a big stand. You can say, God, I'm going to lift my eyes to heaven. I acknowledge you. You are Lord. You are God. You are my authority. You are the... So we can say all that. But then we can still walk out the door and live as if God didn't exist. 
We can still walk out the door and just live the way we want to live for the rest of our lives. And this is the split existence that so many Christians live. I think Satan is still whispering that lie to Christians. And he's saying, it's okay, you can be a Christian. And you can still be like God. You can still be your own God six days a week. And just come to church on Sunday and acknowledge that God is God. We live this kind of split-level existence. And so this needs to come down to the level of practical life. And when we face concrete realities in our life, in these moments, we need to learn to lift our eyes to heaven and bring ourselves under God's authority. Let me just give you one question to flesh this out in your own life. How do you make big decisions? Just think about this. How do you make big decisions? You've got a big financial investment to make or you're thinking about making. You've got a big project you're thinking of embarking on. You've got, you're looking at restructuring your working life. You're looking at starting a new business. Whatever it is. These big decisions that we all face from time to time. Some of you are in that space right now. You're at a bit of an intersection. You're deciding where to go. How do you make those decisions? What is your process? Do you simply talk together as a family about it? Work it through and then make the decision? Do you crunch the numbers, do your homework, do your research, talk to a couple of people you trust, and then make the decision? Do you talk to your business partner about it, figure it out, make a decision? This tends to be the way that we operate. Is there any point in that process where you lift your eyes to heaven and you bring God into that decision? And I don't mean because it's easy to do this in a certain way, isn't it? It's easy to do this where we ask God to ratify a decision that we have already made and got to sign off on this decision. You know, I'm, I'm good with this, God, but I just need your rubber stamp because I heard a sermon on Sunday that told me you need to sign off on things before I go forward. So if you could, give, if you could green light this, that'd be great. No, I mean genuinely lifting your eyes to heaven and saying, God, I want to I lay this decision at your feet. And I want to wait on you. Have you ever done this? Actually waiting on God and spending some time, actually slowing down and stopping and being still long enough that if, if, if there is something God wants to say, he's actually able to say it. Waiting on God and saying, God, if there is something in this decision that you want to lead and guide and shape and influence, if this is not the decision you want me to, if you want to lead me in some other direction, I want to be open to that. Because that's what it means ultimately to live a God-determined life. That is ultimately what it means to take the word Christian and apply it to our life. We have acknowledged that we are not our own authority. We live under the authority of another. So we bring these decisions to God and we say, God, I, I, I want you to lead and guide. And that might mean that you keep going exactly the way you are going and the end result is the same. But sometimes God may have plans that you hadn't thought about. Sometimes God may want to lead you here or there. He's got other ideas of how these decisions should be made or where he wants to steer your life. Are you open enough, genuinely open enough to hear from him? Are you willing to spend that time? And it's risky because who knows, God might actually say something. He might actually prompt your heart in a different direction. And that precious decision, you thought you were heading in this direction, but you suddenly realize to lift my eyes to heaven means to risk the fact that the path may look different from here than I thought it did. But this is where it gets real, huh? This is where it gets real. To choose not to be Nebuchadnezzar means lifting my eyes to heaven and saying, God, I'm going to bring you in, not to the periphery of this decision, but into the center of it. And I want to wait in your presence and allow you to speak. I want to search your word. I want to be prayerful. I want to be careful before I take another step because I want this to orbit around 
you. Are you open to doing that? Are you open to adjusting your decision-making processes? I'm not talking about the little just everyday stuff, but the big decisions you face when there's significant things involved and the stakes are reasonably high, are you willing to adjust your decision-making process and the filters you're using to make decisions to align them with what we read in this chapter, to lift your eyes to heaven and acknowledge that God rules? It's so easy, I think, to, to do this stuff with our lips and fail to do it with our lives. And that's why we need to ask ourselves these hard questions to burrow in on how we're really living the other six days. So as impressive as those hanging gardens of Babylon are, really, they represent this expression of the pride and the selfishness of one arrogant king. And God got Nebuchadnezzar's attention, and he brought him down. And Nebuchadnezzar's final words in this chapter, those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. And sometimes God will do that to our lives painfully, whether we want to or not. So I pray we learn that lesson first, and we're willing to humble ourselves before God needs to step in and humble us. So may we lift our eyes to heaven and acknowledge, not just with our lips, but with our everyday lives, the one who truly rules and has authority. Let's refuse to live these self governed, self-preoccupied, self-obsessed lives and truly bring our lives under the authority of the one who knows what is best for us and cares for us and has created us and wants us to be truly human. And may we keep our eyes on the humble king we serve, Jesus, who shows us what all this looks like. He went to the cross out of obedience. He went to the cross in humility. He went to the cross in submission. And he's going to help us live this out every day of our lives. won't be easy. A lot of the time this will be quite painful because there's an ego there that doesn't like to be suppressed in our lives, right? It's not easy. It's not a walk in the park. But it's a journey that Jesus will take with us by the power of his spirit. He'll shape us into his humble character as we trust in him. Let's pray. Jesus, we want to just be in that place again of being open to your spirit, just being open to your convicting and challenging work in our lives. God, you know that every one of us struggles with this. Lord, every single one of us, you're searching our hearts now. And you know, Lord, that we are just such prideful people. And it looks different for each of us, but God, we're just aware now of the ways in which we are so stubbornly insisting on just living how we want to live. Just, it's amazing, God, how we can just go through years of our lives just making decisions and doing basically what we want to do. And yet, all the while, we've been saying we love you. We've been singing these songs. We've been coming to church. And, but God, just as we look at our lives, we just maybe for the first time we just recognize that really hasn't been coming out in my life at all. That really just hasn't taken hold in my life. That I've just been living in a way that is just, it's just about me. And God, we just want to confess that this morning. Just honestly, we, we just bring our selfishness, God, and even our ignorance, even our failure to see this, God, we just bring it to you and we just say, God, we're so sorry. We're so sorry that we are such proud people, that we've listened to the lie that we can be like God. And we've been arrogant enough to live that way, like we're our own God. And God, we just want to acknowledge we don't really know exactly what it looks like to walk another road because we just don't do it. But we want to. 
we want to stop walking down this path of pride and we want to start down the road of Jesus. We want to take your hand, Jesus. You are the truly humble one. And we want to ask that you would lead us into a life where our lives are truly submitted, truly surrendered, truly laid down before the King of Kings. And we want to ask, God, you'd show us what that means, not just today, but when we face decisions in our lives and when we're tempted just to do our own thing and be our own boss and call the shots. God, in those moments, would you prompt us? When those times come up, would you just like a lightning bolt get our attention and say, there, that's what I'm talking about. That's pride. That's just arrogance. That's human pride. God, would you show us? We're just so ignorant we don't even see it. God, would you show us this week when those times come up, would you just arrest our conscience and turn our hearts to you and help us, God, to lift our eyes to heaven and to say, I'm not going to take another step down this road until I've genuinely brought all this before God and genuinely brought him into the center of my life and my thinking and my reasoning and whatever else and just laid this down and been still and allowed you to speak. God, we're so weak, but we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he takes the broken pieces of our lives and he puts them back together. And we thank you, Jesus, that you are teaching us what it means to trust you, to love you, and to be humble, to walk in humility before you. Humble us, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources, or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.